You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like to maintain a garden that was designed long before you were born and will hopefully be around long after you're gone? In this episode, Scott Smith comes on the show to describe the two sites he manages for National Trust of Scotland, Pitt Madden Gardens and Haddo House Gardens. He's recently overseen some major restoration works that he'll describe for us. He'll also tell us what you can do with 130 varieties of apple trees, and he'll walk us through the process of planting 20,000 annuals every year at one of his sites alone. G'day Scott, welcome to the show mate. Hi Dan, thank you very much for having me. So, you're the head gardener for two heritage sites in Scotland, and I imagine that's not exactly the sort of job that you get out of school. How does someone like you gain the experience to get this sort of a role? Uh, well, you're, you're absolutely right, Dan. It's certainly not something you jump straight into, no. Everybody has to start somewhere. Uh, it may come as a surprise, but I had zero intentions of being a gardener or being into horticulture until I inadvertently started working in a garden. So straight after school, I went to, to uni, to university, to do a course called Ethical Hacking and Countermeasures, which is... Uh, kind of computer hacking <laughs> at the University of Aberdeen in Dundee. The reason I did that was because I was quite into computers at school, didn't really know what I wanted to do, so it sounded great. And then when I actually signed up and got onto the course, I quickly decided that you know dark rooms full of sweaty geeks wearing trench coats like it's the Matrix wasn't really my scene. So mm-hmm. I ended up uh, dropping out of that. And since I did that, I kind of ran out of funding for uni. I couldn't get another course, so... I had to just take the first job I could get, which purely by chance was a seasonal gardener role at Kelly Castle with the National Trust for Scotland. So the head gardener there, Mark, who I still speak to all the time, I consider him a really good friend, you know, he's a real real topper of a guy. He he inspired me and he actively helped me to pursue a horticultural career. He'll always be one of my gardening heroes. So, you know, when I got out there and started doing the job, you know, the fresh air, the light, working with the elements, working with my hands, you know, it just all felt so right at a fundamental level. It all just clicked. You know, I slept better than I'd ever slept. And uh, I worked through my seasonal contract, which just seemed to flash past in a nanosecond, even though it was six months long. It just, <laughs> it just whizzed by. And I enjoyed the place so much that I stayed on to volunteer for a while after my contract finished. One day, one of the gardens advisors actually just showed up for a visit and he said that one of the new apprentices who just started up at the Men Garden, he left after four days starting his apprenticeship because he was too homesick. And Mark went, oh, well, you know, Scott's there, you know, why don't you give him an interview for it? So uh, that was me. I ended up in, as an apprentice up there at Men Garden for a year. And then I signed up to do more and went to Crathus Castle for a few months. And then a job opportunity came along at uh, Duthie Park in Aberdeen, which is run by the City Council. So Duthie Park's often voted and reviewed as one of the best parks in Aberdeen. That'll be contested. Anyone who works at another park is like, ooh, no, it's not. You know, we are. <laughs> so uh, Duthie Park, I still feel, is one of the best parks in Aberdeen. So, you know, when I started there, I, I was certainly nervous because it was me taking on a proper full-time gardening role rather than an apprentice. So, you know, I was expected to know my stuff. But I quickly settled in and, you know, after being there for a couple of years, I kind of felt I'd done all the jobs, seen all the processes, and then I was ready to push myself on for the next step. And it just so happened to come along at the right time, just as I was thinking about trying something else. Uh, they needed a head gardener at a local private estate just on the outskirts of Aberdeen for the Patton family. This was, a, you know, the ideal next step for me because it was running a small team, two to three people. You know, it gave me the practice I need now for doing the job that I have where I'm kind of expected to be in charge of about 20 to 30 people, staff and volunteers. You know, it gave me a a chance to be a real decision maker for the first time. You know, the schedule was up to me. There was nobody giving me orders. Um, You know, work didn't get done. It was my fault for either not planning it well enough or for not getting it done on time. So the family didn't really know anything about gardening. They just wanted the results. So, you know, it gave me a great chance to really 
get to learn how to forecast, how to anticipate what needs done, how to do it, when to do it, by what means, you know, who to get to do it. Um, and to also kind of consider the factors that might affect how the job will, will, you know, be done. So, you know, things that you don't really foresee sometimes like weather, you know, budget constraints, what happens if you suddenly get potato blight? What happens if an aphid attack ruins all of your tomato crops? You know, these kind of things. <laughs> so it's all, all the kind of skills that I use on a daily basis now. So I would say for anyone, you know, out there, it, it's simply a matter of kind of exposing yourself to as many places, to as many people, to as many jobs, equipment, situations as you can. And learning from those, you know, just, just be open, like a big sponge ready to soak it all up. Ultimately, it's about building experience and therefore wisdom to allow you for better decision making. You know, it's it's the old adage of uh, knowledge is known tomatoes a fruit, but wisdom's known not to put it in a fruit salad sort of thing. So, <laughs> I love everything you're saying right now because I'm hoping that there's someone out there who's not in horticulture now listening to a podcast like this thinking, oh, I'd like to be a horticulturist, but I'm already in IT or like me, I was already in sales working in the matrix. Just, I think that it's good to know <laughs> that you can make a career shift into horticulture at any time. Oh, you'd, you'd be amazed how many people I have who are career changers, especially apprentices. We have apprentices who've come from very mixed backgrounds and they're not all necessarily younger people. Quite a lot of them are career changers who are in their mid forties, fifties, who've, who've had a career, you know, who have been professional salespeople or, you know, I think we've even had lawyers um, with petrochemical engineers, that kind of thing. And they just went, no, you know what? I want to be a gardener. And they've started at age 50. So you're never too late to start, you know. Absolutely agree. So, Scott, you run a couple of gardens, and I'd like to have a chat with you briefly about Pit Medden first. So Pit Medden's recently undergone a £100,000 redesign project. Why was this done? Uh, well, this all kicked off when the garden received a generous donation gifted by the Young family. They wanted to impart something that would bring a meaningful and lasting improvement to the garden. So, you know, sadly now Mr. Young has uh, departed. Um, so it's a legacy for him and his children and stuff. So it was decided that after receiving the donation, the, the regional gardens design landscape manager, he kind of analyzed the garden and decided that the upper garden parterres were providing the least visitor impact and were also of the least historic importance as they were you know, put in during the 1990s. So there was scope to impart a change that could provide a much better visitor experience and also along the way tick the boxes for meaningful change, like looking towards the future issues uh you know in the forms of improving biodiversity for fauna increasing floral reward lessening the need for the use of fertilizers chemicals you know to to implement plants that could cope with increasing environmental stresses that we're facing drought and flooding you know the weather nowadays seems to be far less predictable seasons feel a bit out of kilter compared to a few decades mm. ago you know we're sometimes getting a very mild wet winter and then you'll get a heavy load of snow in April. You know, that kind of thing just didn't used to happen. It used to just be heavy snow and frosts were kind of November to March. And then you were into spring. And nowadays it feels almost like everything's knocked back by a few months. Everything feels just slightly off. And, you know, that can really wreak havoc with the plants and with pollination. And so, yeah, basically by putting in these kind of plants that could deal with that, you know, it's great that they can deal with whatever's thrown at them weather-wise. So. Several garden designers weren't reviewed for it. It was a very tricky specification. So, you know, <laughs> it needed to be something that was sympathetic and in the esprit of a 17th century garden. So it was in keeping with everything, but it had to be something totally new, something exciting to attract visitors. It also needed to be something quite low maintenance because the previous two areas were just one side was box hedge parterres with colored gravel, you know, as was very historically accurate to an early form of a parterre and then the other side was box hedge with turf paths you know grass paths and kind of low-growing herbs so kind of true to a slightly later on version of a parterre 
So those two areas didn't get huge amounts of maintenance. You know, the grass was cut and edged and, you know, the hedges were cut and things like that. But, you know, it wasn't like a, a huge upkeep every every week kind of thing. So we had to say to the designer, we need a similar level of maintenance in order for us to keep up the standards across the rest of the garden. So after looking at several interviewers, you know, eventually it was decided that Chris Beardshaw, so if anybody doesn't know who Chris Beardshaw is, he's a multiple gold winner at the Chelsea Flower Show. He has his own design practice. He quite often features on presenting things like Gardener's World, Beach Grove, you know, these kind of things. And he was selected as he just seemed to get it. You know, we spoke, you know, spoke to him and he just, he just got Pit Madden Garden. He got what it was about. He was used to being up in that area recording Beach Grove. So he, he won the tender and the pandemic in 2020, unfortunately delayed things somewhat because we we're due to start in January. But I think with things being as they were, it kind of delayed everything. Eventually in September, 2020, the plan just kind of landed on my desk and I was told, right, on you go, crack on. So that was it. I did pick them up, seen what needed done, got it all planned and organized and just gone with it. So very pleased to say it was all done, done on time, done under budget. The rest of the garden was kept to its usual standards. It was a very big challenge, but it was certainly a rewarding one. You know, we were given no real extra help or additional staff. It was just everybody who was already there doing what they were doing. So it was like, keep the garden as it is, but also get this project done. Mm. and we did it we managed to do it and it was it was you know it was a challenge but i'm really glad that we got the opportunity to perform it and we're now reaping the rewards of that because the parterres just keep looking better and better you know they're maturing now they're starting to fill and it's it's really coming to life absolutely so did anything go wrong during that project or did everything just go beautifully and smoothly exactly how you planned well, for the most part, it went well, I would say. You know, people love a disaster story and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, there, there wasn't really anything majorly wrong. It was more just things cropped up and how you deal with it. Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of what I'm asking. Yeah. No, I mean, there's all sorts of things that you just don't sometimes think about unless you really, truly sit down and rack your brain. So... Things like all the paths that go through the middle of the project, Chris Beardshaw designed them by looking at the archives in Boulevacon, which is a French garden, and Pimedin is, is French in its, its style and its nature. So he looked at the archives and found these uh, scrolls, these border scrolls, and he based the paths off of that. So these paths were very complex shapes. You know, there was all kind of little dog legs in it and big long curves and things like that. So in order to impart a solid edge, we had to use steel. So with steel, it was 10 foot lengths. No, not 10 foot lengths, actually, it was six meter lengths. I don't work in feet, I work in meters, uh, <laughs> new school. So it was, yes, yeah, six meter lengths, which, uh, God, I don't know, tell me how much that is in feet, quite a lot. They were huge and they weighed a ton. And it's things like those showing up on site, where do you put them? And then how do you move them afterwards? Because they're so long that even if two people grabbed an end each, it was so bendy and wobbly, you couldn't move the thing. So there's little things like, where do you put that? How do you get them into position? How do you get them ready for the blacksmiths ready to weld? You know. Um, and how did you do that? Oh, I can't tell you. It's illegal. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trade secret. We, um, uh, no, no, we, we ended up having to kind of uh, band them all together with slings um, and we had a digger on site and just had to very slowly drive the digger dragon oh, them, yeah. um, to get them as, as close as possible. Um, <laughs> and then about, you know, five people to actually lift the thing <laughs> and get it in position. <laughs> because what, what we did to do the paths, because it was steel, was we actually had these big metal rod pins, you know, about 700 mil long. And basically, we, we tapped in a pin every meter or so where the, the steel was to go. And then what you did was you lowered the steel into position against the pin with the pin maybe 20 mil down. Because, you know, later on, if you're edging the grass, you don't want to keep hitting the top of that pin. So we had to put it slightly lower than where the top of the steel edge was. Hold that in position and the blacksmiths would come along and do tack welding, big welding. And because it was like one big solid steel structure, you know, as soon as you got to a curve, as soon as you welded it, it kind of popped and sucked itself into place. 
so it's all these little things that you you wouldn't really necessarily sometimes think about you know how do you think how do i get that steel edge in how do i hold it in place how do i actually secure it how do i make sure in later years it doesn't fall apart you know we ended up after putting all the steel edge in and we had to go back and do horizontal tie bars which was a big huge metal bar that went between the two and you welded those so it pulled them really tight into position so they don't flop later on you know little things like this that just you might just think you know okay i've got some garden plans and i'm going to plant some plants but you know you have to (laughs) think about you know how do i how do i get the ground ready you know have i got the right soil type is it going to be good for the plants you know we ended up having to bring in about 140 tons of topsoil which wow. you know you just don't have lying about in the yard. <laughs> so <laughs> then you would, when you've got this much topsoil, you think, well, how am I going to get it here? You have to ask a company. How did they bring it? Well, okay, they bring it in a you know an eighteen ton Arctic rolling truck. How do I get that in the yard? So you have to go cut some you know stuff back, some shrubbery back, so that the truck can get up to get it to tip in. And you know, <laughs> it's uh, all these little micro steps that kind of make the job become a big job rather than just a quick, you know, rip some stuff out and plant some new stuff in. <laughs> and how big did you say the site was? The walled garden itself is around seven acres. And then outside the walled garden, there's woodland, which well, at least a couple hundred acres kind of thing. But the main walled garden itself is kind of where we spend the majority of the time, if you know. How has the site improved since you started this redesign project at Pitmedden? There's a definite noticeable visitor presence in the upper garden areas um, where once they used to have a tendency to kind of wander past, you know, they would come in, go, oh yeah, box and some gravel and then kind of wander on. They now linger and walk through the garden a lot more in this area. So they like to go through the parterre itself. You know, you tend to see them sit discussing the plants, giving them a sniff, you know, kind of spending time wanting to touch them. The upper garden itself has much more connectivity now. It used to be rooms, really. So it was two parterres, and they were kind of blocked off on all sides, either by the pleached lime trees or by the uh, beach hedges. So, you know, because the design required two of the horizontal beach hedges to be removed, it's much more open plan, and the fountain is now the central focus point. So there's a lot more unity in the upper garden by removing the beach hedges, and you can see right across the whole thing. The paths kind of flow and they allow multiple entry and exit points that kind of encourage exploration for the visitors. And there's a lot more access and options for disabled visitors, you know, people in wheelchairs. They can now wander right through the parterres. You know, before it was gravel, they kind of had a hard time on it and things like that. But now that it's a turf path that wanders right through, they can quite easily go through and they're at the right height for seeing and smelling plants. The problem with kind of old properties like ours is they were obviously never designed for visitors. You know, when you when you build a new attraction nowadays, you know, you've got far more things in place for being accessible and friendly to all types of people. But these old properties, they are old. It's old stone staircases. You know, there's no mm-hmm. ramps. There's no uh, good way to get visitors around, that, you know. So having things like this really helps provide more for a range of visitors. Kids as well, you know, Pitmen was kind of always known to be quite formal, a bit stuffy. You know, you didn't want kids running about bashing your nicely clipped box hedges. So there's a lot more big areas that twist and turn. It's good for kids to run about. It's nice to see them running through it. You know, I've got kids myself. I can sympathize with parents who've got kids full of beans wanting to just race around everywhere. We've noticed a big increase in fauna. So there's way more hoverflies, lace wings, bees, wasps, moths. And in turn, you know, a variety of birds that feed on those insects as well. So you know, the biggest obvious improvement really is the, the floral reward as discussed earlier, because we now have huge swathes of plants in all sorts of shapes and sizes and colors. You know, they ebb and flow and they change throughout the season. So, you know, where it used to once just be kind of low, subtle box hedging, you know, we now have things like, you know, Angelica, you know, standing triumphantly 10 foot in the air. <laughs> you can see it from a mile away. You know, there's a big sea of color, you know, the grass sway in the breeze and, you know, it really draws you in attraction. It makes you want to go look at it and wander through it. So. That is awesome. So on this podcast, we have a few plants that are particularly loved and a few plants that are particularly despised. And Buxus is one that's come up a few times. 
Um, which camp do you think that one falls into? Well, I've uh, no issue with boxers. Boxers was one of the standards for hedging for hundreds of years um, for a very good reason. You know, nothing does boxes like boxes or, you know, box. I'll just call it box. Mm. Nothing does box like box. You know, it it's so clippable, shapeable, malleable. It, it It's so great at making intricate shapes. You know, it makes fantastic parterres. It makes fantastic topiary. Um, it's green, you know, it's it's tight it it grows well you know box was used for a very good reason and i did love box but obviously at, at the pitmed garden we're having a lot of issues with box blight so in that sense it's quite sad that something that's been used for so many centuries is suddenly encountering many major issues with you know the box blight you know and box moth i don't know if you've got box moth over there or not uh i don't uh, good question i'm not entirely sure the yeah that's very interesting to hear and i'm so glad to hear some defense for buxus because i'm guilty of it from time to time living in melbourne but they i think some of the feedback i've been hearing about buxus from aussies is that it can be a bit of a cliche or it's a bit of a boring plant when we could be planting other things but I think it's so awesome because you are exactly the sort of gardener who would be using buxus and that's really buxus's home environment i'm not sure if they're native but i I guess i imagine the sort of gardens that you're working in as being the perfect garden for buxus well yeah i am in a formal garden and as such formal gardens tend to have very rigid structures in nature so you know that's why that's why box is is so used in pimeden garden basically the the garden was bequeathed to the trust in the 1950s so 1953 and when it was handed over to the trust, they decided to put the garden back to its 17th century roots. So previously, it, it was well, it was bought by the, the Keith family, who were agriculturalists in the, in the late 1800s, and they kind of used it as just a big fruit and vegetable garden. So when they passed it on to the trust, they wanted to put it back. And a big part of that was implementing the four main parterres within the lower garden. And all those four parterres was box hedging, which, you know, was the standard at the time and very understandable for its use. So where I find myself sitting at the moment is I'm there 70 odd years later with this box hedge that was put in historically by George Barron. Uh, George Barron was one of the original Beech Grove Garden TV presenters, quite well known in my neck of the woods. And, you know, I find myself with this box hedge that everybody knows and loves facing all sorts of issues. <laughs> uh, and it puts me in the hot seat a little bit, you know, when it's encountering all sorts of problems and I'm yeah. having to sort of come up with a 10-year plan to kind of gradually change it. So six kilometers of buxus in 10 years to to replace and remove. So what 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 are we doing there? What are you going to replace it with? Is it just going to be the same one plant or are you going to mix it up a bit? Or No, we, we had to do a real huge amount of thought and analysis on this because, you know, and it was, it was analyzed quite strenuously really. And it's not been a decision that was taken lightly. You know, for us, it was absolutely imperative that we keep the design as close as possible to the original layout, you know, ideally verbatim. And all we're going to do is literally change the box hedge for another type of hedge and keep the design the same. Mm -hmm. It's very important to me that the public know we're not messing with the design. It's such an integral part of the garden. So, you know, ultimately I never planned or wanted to be the person that had to make such a huge, you know, decision. It's just kind of been thrust upon me. Um, I genuinely feel that the box hedge we have at the moment is unsustainable and we have to kind of kick into action now in order to be able to preserve the integrity of the garden. So, you know, we created this 10-year plan to swap out systematically you know and strategically kind of a sympathetic approach to the box you know bit by bit you know area by area in order to replant it and give a similar effect what we actually did was we started a few years back you know just when i first kind of came in doing trials of alternate hedge types you know you can go onto any good site you know like the rhs and they'll give you a list of suggested box hedge alternatives but for me you know you really have to test it in your own site because what works in Cornwall down in south of England doesn't work in the northeast of Scotland. Uh, you know, a great example of that is everyone touted Yonimus japonicus green spires as as the best one. You know, the greatest box hedge alternative. It looks like it. It's got the same color. It knits. 
And I thought, great. So, you know, we tried that in our uh, herb garden trial area and half of it died during the first uh, snow. So no use Mm. here. (laughs) So what we have done is we've tried quite a lot of different types of hedging, all the usual suspects. You know, we've tried Ilex Granata. We tried the Onumis. There was some stuff that we just knew straight away was far too soft to work up here, like the Karokias and things. So what we have found that does work is good old yew, you know, Taxus baccata. We already have that in the garden. It works well. It's clippable. The advantage of that is it, it comes away from brown wood. So, you know, that means if you cut it really hard, it will reshoot. You know, some conifers, if you cut them hard, they don't come back. That's them gone. But yew is quite forgiving. And again, it's, it's malleable. You can make shapes. You can make topiary. And the other type of hedging that we've had good success with is uh, Lanicera natida. Megrum. So that's like a type of honeysuckle. You wouldn't think honeysuckle, but it, it doesn't look like a traditional sort of honeysuckle that climbs up the wall and flowers. It's it's much more like a little tight hedge. Again, we've found that's really quick growing, malleable. It forms tight shapes. It'll be good for doing intricate sort of patterns and shapes because the parterres we have are actually quite complex in their natures. You know, we've got lettering, we've got numbers, we've got um Animals, believe it or not, you know, in, inside the coat of arms parterre, it's the family crest. So there's otters of all things. And um, so you kind of like, how do I make an otter out of a hedge? Uh, and <laughs> That's a pretty good episode idea. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, we've had to trial a few types of hedging. So at the moment, it, it's seeming to be the theme that if it's a straight hedge, we're going with you. And if it's complex patterns, or shapes like we have um, in the fleur-de-lis or daisies or anything like that, probably more likely to be the Lanissa and the Tida Megrum. So you also have 130 varieties of apples on site. Mm-hmm, sure do. Is that part of the heritage? It's purely one-upsmanship, Dan. Uh, one of our sister properties <laughs> had more varieties than us, so uh, we had to put in a new orchard in 2015 and nick the crown off them. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, seriously though, uh, we we do have as many as we can, you know, because we can. We have the space, we have the capacity, we have the staff and the skill sets to look after them. And one of the goals of the National Trust for Scotland is to champion the care of heritage cultivars, you know, fruits, vegetables, and national plant collections. So we have many unusual varieties at Pimeden. Um It's always advantageous to have a diverse range in your collection. We do have several trees of the same cultivar type. You know, we've got multiple Bramley seedlings, multiple Margols, multiple Egremont russets, for example. So the new orchard was put in, again, before I started back in 2015, and they decided to put in as much types as they could for diversity because, you know, we weren't really necessarily requiring volume of apples. Um, We have an apple event called Apple Sunday, the last Sunday of every September, where we harvest all the apples and bag them and sell them. So we already produce more than enough you know normally we have about 2000 kilos of apples so they could afford to put in a lot of singular diverse types in the new orchard rather than worrying about huge croppers so you know we do have heritage types um, older types unusual types as well as some of the more commercial normal ones that you would maybe see so the range of apples just kind of all adds to the richness of the site you know there's all sorts of shapes sizes colors (laughs) Yeah, totally. So you've also got 20,000 annual bedding plants. That's massive. <laughs> yeah, sure is. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very big time-consuming job. It normally begins around November. Uh, and when we have that, we start planning what will actually go into the parterres for the following year. After we've kind of decided what we want, we have to plan the sowing schedules because we have limited space for growing. So We have an old 1960s glass house, which, you know, we kind of keep repairing and and keeping it together. We've got a big polytunnel. And in the glass house, we've got one sort of heated propagation bench, which is handy for seedlings that need a lot of bottom heat to germinate and things. We have to very carefully plan what to sow, how much to sow, when to sow it, because it's easy to get overwhelmed by doing too much. Or even worse than that is not doing enough because there's nothing worse than starting to plant a parterre uh, and then getting, you know, three quarters of the way through and finding you've run out of plants and you have to go change it all because everything we do at Pimeden for the bedding, it's all calculated. You know, we do straight lines, everything gets stringed out and we actually do spacing as well. So we'll get little bamboo canes and we know what plants, what the spacing is. So 
you know, it's six inch, seven inch, eight inch, nine inch, whatever. Or, you know, sometimes you'll have like a nine inch border and then seven inches between plants. Sometimes it's, you know, matching rows. Sometimes it's staggered rows. So, you know, everything is calculated down to the numbers and you've got thousands of plants to think about. So it takes a bit of planning and preparation, which we've kind of finessed over the years. Mm. The other thing, of course, is you don't want to grow too much and be wasteful either, because what we tend to do is grow all the plants, plant them out. What we've got left can kind of go into window boxes, tubs, planters, and then anything surplus after that goes up for sale. So visitors to the garden can take something home if there's if there's more bedding plants than we need. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we kind of have the whole process quite well organized. Once you've got all your, your seeds selected and you've got your sowing schedule, you know, you start getting them sown. And then once they're germinated, they need to be pricked out into individual modules so that they can grow decent roots ready for planting out. So, you know, we normally use modules of 24s or 25s, so you get 25 plants into a tree. So if you think about 20,000 plants, you know, divided by 25, I don't know how your math is, but, you know, it takes up a lot of room, a lot of space, and, you know, you have to keep them watered, you have to keep them fed, and then when we're near the time to plant and out, we have to start hardening them off, you know, gradually introducing more air, letting them kind of get used to being outside before we plant them out. Because, you know, if you just take them straight out the glasshouse and shove them outside, they do not do well. They tend to sulk because it's Scotland, it's cold. <laughs> so, you know, our whole schedules, you know, first sowing is usually around mid-February because of the light levels and the heat. You know, there's always a temptation to start sowing stuff in January, but you just do not have the light quality up here that you need so mid-February is kind of our earliest time to start sowing so you know sowing kicks off you know mid-February and then you're kind of looking at getting all the plants in the ground about the end of May because up here our, our last frost tends to be middle of May but it can be as late as the end of May start of June again the very last thing that you want to do is uh, spend months growing plants only to plant them outside and they'll get frosted and die so <laughs> That's that's a big no-no. You've got to avoid that as well. So the whole process takes a lot of time. It can be laborious, but ultimately it gives a spectacular display that the visitors come to see and everyone enjoys it. It's what makes the garden so special. You know, I have had people in the past ask me, why don't you just put in perennials rather than annuals? But the thing is, you know, we're an amenity garden. You know, we're open to the public. We have repeat visitors. So we strive to change the display every year. It's not static. Perennials would be static. They don't give us the same level of impact and color and uniformity for the length of time needed. You know, yes, it's hard work, but what in life worth doing isn't hard work. You know, people saying swap your annuals out to me is like saying, well, get rid of your houseplants, put in plastic ones because it's easier. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not the same. So I feel as long as you're clever about how we raise the plants, you know, we minimize waste. Um, we reuse the trays, you know, we wash them and reuse them every year. If the module liners are damaged or unusable, they actually get recycled now. One of the big things I tried to do because we do so many plants is we tried to swap the, the liners for recyclable ones. In the past, they weren't. They went to landfill. Really didn't like that. Wasn't on board with that. But the new ones are recyclable, which is great. We have our own compost supply. Obviously, all this stuff in the garden goes into the compost heap and you know, when it comes time to raise the annual bed and we kind of use a combination of our own compost with kind of some peat-free stuff. So, you know, we don't use peat. It's all our own stuff. Um, You know, we make up our mixes by sort of combining the two with other bits and bobs in there, you know, sharp sand and and so on. And our own leaf mold, which is, you know, riddled and put in there for, you know, water retention, that kind of thing. Yeah, so, you know, ultimately by doing the annuals, we look after and retain some of the history of the site, but also provide a great visitor experience. Love it. And look, that's not actually enough for you, is it? So you also manage the Haddo House Gardens. Can you tell us how big is that site? So Haddo House itself is is a ginormous park. The park is kind of split into three areas. So the National Trust for Scotland look after quite a small section of it. It's it's only 19 acres. The 19 acres includes woodland and the upper main terrace gardens. So the main terrace gardens are maybe four to five acres kind of thing. And then the rest of the park is managed by the local council and all the outskirts is managed privately by the Aberdeen family. Right. 
Can you tell us about the restoration project that was undertaken by the previous head gardener there? Sure. So the previous head gardener, Una, um, she started a project back in 2014 to restore the terrace gardens truer to its Victorian roots. Um, what she actually did was she went through the big archives in the main house and found that there was a painting by James Giles back from 1851. Uh, the painting depicts the formal terrace gardens as they were. Some of the garden had kind of fallen into disrepair, you know, concrete edging for the beds were all knocked out of line, herbaceous borders were full of bindweed, areas that were once growing many plants had just been turfed down, turned to grass. So consequently, you know, you know, she brilliantly came up and planned and organised the garden as we see it today. She worked very hard to implement her vision and take it back to us. It's, it's a pretty dead-on depiction of that James Giles painting. Um, so, you know, we now have rose beds with semi-rambling roses that climb up a central pole, you know, very Victorian. The new beds put in place and, you know, the old beds were fixed up. So, you know, it now allows a very impressive spring, summer, autumn display, which is kind of a bit of a combination of annuals and perennials. You know, uh, Haddo puts in about 10,000 annuals, which is still a lot of annuals. Mm. Um, herbaceous borders are unrecognizably better. They're full, they're healthy. There's no bindweed. And there's also a new area running below parallel to the terrace garden known as the Jubilee Garden. Quite simply, it was because it was completed in 2017, which was the, the year of the, the Queen's Sapphire Jubilee in the UK. So, you know, I, I've strived to continue the great work when I started and keep constantly improving the garden as much as I can, you know, chop and change little bits to try and tweak it. Thankfully, Tim, the first gardener at Haddo, he was actually working with Una at the time as a seasonal. He was instrumental in the project. So he's got that lineage. He knows the garden well. And, you know, he's helping also to keep it going and to keep it tweaking and to, you know, try to really tighten that garden up, you know. Hmm. So if you put the two gardens side by side, how would you say, like, what are some of the key differences between those two sites? Um, well, so Pitmeden is a very formal 17th century garden with French design roots. So the garden was originally started in 1675 by Sir Alexander Seaton. He was friends with William Bruce, who was a quite a prominent Scottish architect. Some of his works can be seen at Holyrood House Palace, you know, what is now Holyrood Palace in, in Edinburgh on the Royal Mile. So because Alexander Seaton was good friends with them and kind of said, you know, I'm a somebody, I need a fancy garden because it's a sign of wealth and power, you know. He asked William Bruce. William Bruce was actually in a lot of talks with James II, who was in exile in Paris. There was a lot of stuff going on back then that you you might know about Catholicism, Protestants and things. So <laughs> basically, William Bruce was over there having these secret meetings. And of course, back then, you know, there was no maps, there was no Google, there was no images. There was You had to see things with your own eyes. And because he was over there in France, he's seen a lot of the excellent gardens like Versailles and Vaux-le-Vicon. So William Bruce said to Sir Alexander Seaton, I've seen these and they're quite, you know, they're something else. So that's how the Pitmeden Garden was designed. We believe, you know, obviously we don't have perfect historic plans or anything like that. What happened when the trust took over the place in the 1950s was they went through the archives at the Holyrood House Palace. And they found, again, drawings at the time which mapped what Holyrood House Palace parterres looked like. You know, that was designed by William Bruce, so it was about as close as they could get. And they lifted three of those parterres absolutely off the page and put them into Pitmeden with one new one as the coat of arms as a, as a homage to the family. So in style, Pitmeden's very tight. You know, we've got uh, a lot of topiary, we've got obelisked yews, we've got four parterres you know all the fruit is very formally trained along the walls it's all about you know neat tight precision perfectly clipped edges you know striped lawns that kind of thing Haddo House on the other hand is more Victorian in its nature so basically Haddo House you know it, it benefits enormously from the borrowed landscape as I talked about in the park you know the terrace garden the back of the house line up with what's called the Scots Mile it's a big Mile and a mile and a quarter long stretch. That's why it's called a Scots mile. It's longer than an English mile, of course. So it, it runs right along the back of the house, out way out into the park. So you've got all those beautiful specimen trees, and you know we've got a lime avenue, you know tilias, which stretch beyond the terrace gardens. Haddo House itself, you know, it's it's a very impressive large mansion house. 
designed by William Adam back in 1832. You know, and you can go into the house there and have, have tours of the house. It's, it's a truly impressive house inside to see, as well as the, as well as the gardens. So the differences are really 17th century versus 19th century, French in style versus more kind of Victorian, possibly even Italianate style. So they are different, and they both have their their foibles. <laughs> <laughs> so you're currently studying in M Hort through the Royal Horticultural Society. Can you tell us a little bit about this qualification and what you've been learning about recently? Sure. So the Royal Horticultural Society, just for anybody who's not aware, they're the leading UK garden charity. They organise events like the Chelsea Flower Show. They've got a lot of flagship gardens like, you know, Wisley. They've got a great website. You know, it's got an excellent online plant finder service that gives you all the information you need about your plants. So, you know, height, size, hardiness, um, how to propagate it, pest and disease issues, all that. It's a really excellent website for that. You know, they publish a huge range of books on different topics within horticulture. But they also provide a range of training and qualifications that accommodate to, you know, various experience levels from absolute beginner to professional. So the MHort, which I'm currently studying, it's short for Master of Horticulture. It's their most prestigious qualification. It's a a degree level equivalent that kind of takes place over about three years, aimed at professional horticulturalists. The qualification is done, it's entirely done in your own time. You know, there's no lectures to attend. It's all self-driven, self-led research and development. And that's done through the VLE, you know, virtual learning environment online. So you're kind of required to use a combination of online resources, you know, mainly journals, scientific papers, but also books. You know, part of signing up is you get access to their excellent online library, which has got a wealth of books right at your fingertips. That's great. The courses split up into around eight units, which range, well, they greatly range from, you know, global horticulture to how to locate and use scientific research management, leadership theory, you know, quite a, quite a wide range of topics that have been carefully honed and crafted over the years to, to guide the candidates through anything relevant to, to horticulture, really, for professionals. And it's designed to help them grow and, and develop necessary skills to take that next sort of step in their careers. You're, you're, you're greatly fortunate in that you have different leaders and assessors for each unit as well. And those people are all very accomplished horticulturalists in their own respective careers. So you're in great hands, you know, they are there to answer questions and, and help if you need help kind of thing. But for the most part, you know, at the start of the unit, you have a quick hour long Zoom chat with them. They tell you what you've got to do. And then that's you for the next few months just left to get on with it. So, hmm. and, you know, they mark your work and you get feedback and it, it's not hugely friendly. You know, they tell you, we're not here to be your friend. We're here to make you better. So, you know, you get your feedback and they are honest and you go like, wow, okay, right, that's fine. I'll learn from that. (laughs) So it's a bit of a Gordon Ramsay style approach. Yeah, a little bit. I may be sounding a bit harsh here. (laughs) You know, I mean, what I mean is you can't just hand anything in and get 100%. You know, they are here to say like, you've done this wrong. That could be better. This bit could be changed by doing this and so on. And and that's actually a very good thing, you know, because it, it really helps you to learn and grow. I can honestly say wholeheartedly, I'd recommend, of course, to anyone ready for that kind of thing who can make that level of commitment. It's excellent value for money. Although I'm still in first year, I feel I've honestly grown a lot from doing it, both academically and professionally. So prior to enrollment in it, I did the course below, the sort of lower one, which was the RHS Level 3 Diploma in the Principles and Practice of Horticulture, as they recommend that as a prerequisite before starting. So that provides some of the fundamental background knowledge and of course, I kind of use that in tandem with my own experience of actual hands-on horticulture. So the M-Horse, the M-Hort course is something that I'd looked at since I was a student way back in 2012. So I remember reading about it at the time and thought, you know, one day I'll be good enough to do that. You know, one day I'll be ready for that sort of thing. So I'm very proud to be taking part of it, you know, now about a decade later. <laughs> Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about a paper that you were telling me about on LinkedIn. So it's a paper called A New Era for Horticulture, Monocot Grafting Made Possible. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So I wrote that as the latest part of the MHORT course I was doing. We were asked to write a 2,500 word article piece. 
So I did mine based on the 2022 study from Reeves et al. about their discovery of successful monocoque grafting. This was a huge deal as it's something that's never been done before and, and thought to be impossible. In the paper that I wrote, I, I discussed I discuss, you know, the study itself, how it was done, how it works, and also the ramifications of the study. You know, they managed to successfully graft plants across all 11 orders of the monocoque clades, which is a huge deal. I also give a brief overview about the history of grafting, you know, potential impacts the study has on the world of, world of horticulture and, you know, in, intern agriculture as well, I suppose. And I give specific mention to Cavendish banana, you know, and how monocot grafting may help in dealing with the biggest threat facing the Cavendish banana, which is Panama wilt and, you know, specifically the tropical race four strain. But as I said, it's, it, was, it was great fun to write. I really enjoyed it. It's available for anyone needing an article piece. You know, Karen at Hort Journal of Australia, you know where I'm at, mate. <laughs> you know, if you want it, you can publish it. Pray see, I don't mind. <laughs> so. Oh, I don't know, for sure, 100%. But would you ever do a lecture on it? Ooh, <laughs> lecture sounds like I'm a real expert on it. Would you ever lecture for me, for the podcast? Well, I mean, I could quite happily. Yeah, yeah, I certainly wouldn't mind at all. Because I can't let this topic go. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know we're going to do another episode, which our listeners might like, about pruning apple trees. But mm-hmm, yeah. I've want I've been wanting to experiment a little bit with content, and I reckon a lecture would be the per, like a lecture would be the perfect format for this grafting thing because you know you've studied it and you can talk about what you've studied, but maybe you know if I'm asking questions, you might get off track from what the informa- the key information that you'd like to get across. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, it, it, in itself, it's quite a large topic. With the article, I had to be careful not to jump about too much because. You could quite easily spend your 2,500 words just talking about grafting and how to graft or the history Mm. of grafting. You know, you could also spend the 2,500 words just talking about the study and how they actually discovered it and how they actually performed the study itself. You know, you could spend all of the word count talking about the Cavendish banana and how it's, you know, 90% of the world's bananas that you get are Cavendish bananas and we're reliant really upon a single cultivar. You know, you could talk more about Panama Wilt and how that works. So it was kind of just, you know, having to bounce about and take the select amount of information carefully just to get enough to kind of garner everything together, if you like. You had to be careful not to get sucked too far down the rabbit hole on one thing or another. Exactly. I love the interview format because you can have the bounce back between ideas. But with certain topics, I do wonder if the lecture is a better format to get that information across. Yeah, it could be. I mean, <laughs> lecturing sounds uh, very, very professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lecture for our listeners, like I, I don't want to scare anyone. We're not going back to school here. A lecture just means like one person talking as opposed to an interview. <laughs> but our listeners like mm-hmm. to learn, so yeah. they're not afraid of a little bit of schooling. So is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about, Scott? Oh, um, I just... Uh, I would like to say I feel incredibly privileged, really, to be sat here talking to you today, Dan, uh, and to the listeners themselves. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you know, you might be sat in traffic or you might be out cracking up the Barbie or, you know, you might be in the bath or something. I don't know. Wherever you are, um, thank you very much for your time and attention. I'd say to anyone out there thinking about trying gardening, if you've never done it before, or maybe amateur gardeners who want to get into horticulture more professionally, please do and do so wholeheartedly. Dive right in. Surrender yourself to the world of possibilities. You know, horticulture is such a massively diverse world with so many vistas and avenues of study, work, play. I I can honestly say horticulture has changed my life for the better and really given me a purpose. So I'm not sure yet of my ultimate aim in horticulture, but the beauty, it's it's an enjoying the journey. You know, give yourself something along the way to aim for all the time and just, you know, feel the growth. You know, horticulture, it's just, it's an amazing field. Well said. I could not agree any more with you, Scott. Beautiful message, mate. Thanks for coming on the show, mate, and for an awesome episode, dude. Oh, thank you. I hope it wasn't boring. (laughs) I'm trying not to be uh, one of those kind of dull folk. It's amazing how you think that you're quite, you know, eloquent and that you think you're well-spoken and that you can be interesting. And then you listen to yourself back on a recording and you think, God, I sound boring. You know, I sound dull. Uh, (laughs) Well, you don't sound dull to me, mate. 
that, that's one of the things I do find, you know, when it comes to gardening and horticulture, there's so many people that are dull as dishwater. You know, gardening <laughs> is a really exciting topic. And there's so many people that just, you know, you, you start listening to it and you go, Ugh, and you switch off. And it doesn't have to be that way. You know, it can be very exciting. It can be very interesting. You know, I think even some of the, the top people who are on TV and things like that, you watch it and you go like, you know, no wonder young people aren't interested in this. You know, it's, it, you know, it, I think if you're truly good at what you do, you can attract a new audience and you can make people sit up and listen and, and watch, even if they don't know anything about the talk. I feel like horticulture can kind of really do with someone like that, you know, someone to really draw in the crowds and bring attention to it, even if you're not interested in it and kind of get a new a new audience. I completely agree. And I think a lot of those old talking heads that we all know and love, they're the people who were grinding 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. They're doing what we're doing now. We're just grinding now. Yeah, that, that's very true. You know, obviously we're in, dare I say it, modern times, modern formats, you know, podcasting. <laughs> that was never done 20 years ago. So, you know, it, it's different ways, different means, different people. So. You know, it could be one day we're seen as the old fuddy duddies and you know, you know, <laughs> people so. go like. <laughs> awesome, bro. Cheers again. But, uh, thank you very much, Dan. A career in horticulture can allow you to work in gardens around the world. If you like the sound of working in formal gardens like the ones that Scott oversees, why not add that to your future plans? Don't forget to subscribe to the Plants Grow Here podcast so you don't miss out on new weekly episodes. Hit the bell button and allow notifications, and then go back through our back catalogue of 109 other episodes. In episode 76, I took a tour of Warrnambool Botanic Gardens with the head gardener John Shearley.